Welcome back, everyone. Jose Nino's here bringing you another intellectually stimulating episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I have on Stephen Carson of the YouTube channel Radical Liberation. But before we start, Stephen, tell my audience more about yourself. Well, I, I think I may have a somewhat unique background. I um, grew up in a, what you might call a sort of a dissident activist movement of sorts. My father was a Christian missionary to Jewish people. So I grew up around Jews for Jesus, if you've ever heard of that. My father was trained by the guy who founded that. And so street activism was a, just a natural part of my life growing up. In this case, you know, spreading the gospel. But it introduced me to a lot of things that I'm going to be talking about shortly in England about how to do activism, you know. Anyway, that's my childhood. And then I got interested in mass murder. Well, this was my childhood too, sorry to say. I got interested in mass murder by states when I was 11, believe it or not. And I uh, read deeply and widely and eventually published on that topic in uh, Robert Higgs' The Independent Review. So that's been a big interest. And that, of course, got me into the area of politics. Because once you start thinking about how it is that states end up killing a million people of the state's own citizens, right? Yeah, um, democide. <laughs> yeah, democide. You know the term. Very good. Yeah, once you start thinking about something like that, it starts making you think a lot about the nature of politics and the nature of the state and so forth. And so I eventually got interested in libertarianism through a friend and then found my way, after checking out a number of institutions, found my way to the Mises Institute, where I very often have attended their events. Stopped for a while because we had eight children. But I've been going back again every spring to their research conference for the last couple of years. So anyway, learned about economics through them. But to, to be very clear, though, I do cover with the help of a friend from Canada, I do cover financial markets on my show. That is not really my center. I mean, just because I learned about economics, I'm able to kind of, I think, do a reasonable job with it with help. But my center actually is that mass murder by states, right? It's, it's more the what you might call the political economy aspect as opposed to study of the free market per se, right? You have to understand the free market to understand everything else. But my focus is a little more on, on the worst depredations of, of the state. So yeah, and then I started a YouTube career and that got me involved with um, a certain camp of the dissident right in recent years through my friend Academic Agent. There's a whirlwind tour. I'm sure I left out a dozen things. <laughs> well, yeah, would you describe yourself as an Austro-Libertarian? Would that be accurate? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's it's hard because there's people in the right and a guy named Andy Nowicki, who was uh, involved with altright.com. He's been complaining about this on his channel, which is quite interesting, saying, you know, some people just seem to be, some people on the right just seem to be allergic to the word libertarian or whatever. And, and he's like, I, I don't really get it. I mean, at no point in becoming right wing and being red pilled, did I realize that the state was based and awesome, you know, like, like, what has the state ever done for us? You know, so that's kind of where I'm at. I have been in, in my mind, at least synthesizing things that I'm learning from the dissident right with all of the things I learned at the Mises Institute about Austrian economics as well as even libertarian insights into the nature of the state and so forth. So to me, it, I'm just benefiting from all these traditions. I, I don't worry too much about what people want to call me or how they want to think about me. Though I have, uh, as I think caught your attention, I have adopted this term medieval anarchist, partially just to, it gets people's attention. You know, it's a good conversation starter. 
<laughs> yeah, go go into that because medieval anarchism is a pretty interesting subject, and most people tend to associate anarchism with its more quote unquote leftist permutations in the nineteenth century. Could you delve into that topic of medieval anarchism and enlighten my audience about that? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, that that's one of the reasons why I like the term medieval anarchism. In fact, is because. It, it pisses off the anarchists I don't like. <laughs> right? They're, they're going to see medieval anarchists and they're going to go, oh, yuck. I, I don't want that, you know. Too reactionary. Yeah, exactly. They're going to instinctively dislike that, right? But I don't like them, so so that, that works fine for me. <laughs> yeah, so what do I mean by medieval anarchism? First of all, I want to say there's a great channel about history run by a friend, Apostolic Majesty, highly recommended. Before I went public with this term, which I'd been toying about, toying with for a long time in my head, I actually checked with him. And I said, is this crazy? Am I, am I crazy thinking about it this way? And I kind of went over like why I was using the term medieval anarchism, what I had in mind. And he knows way more about medieval Europe than I do. And he said, no, no, you're right. That, that, that's true. So what do I mean by medieval anarchism? Well, medieval anarchism refers to a real, long-lasting part of our history that, along with so many other things, has been flushed down the Orwellian memory hole that had a lot to say for itself. So, of course, all we hear is about how the Middle Ages were dark ages and everybody was ignorant and superstitious and burned witches for no reason and for absolutely no reason at all. Right, Jose, that's the phrase uh, we've learned to use. <laughs> yeah. For absolutely no reason at all, they did these crazy things. You know, But I think it's much maligned. I'd also, by the way, uh, mention the name Rachel Fulton Brown at University of Chicago. She's a medievalist who focuses on the uh, cult of Mary. Uh, she's uber-Catholic. <laughs> but she brings a lot of insight onto the Middle Ages, I think. Anyway, so, so what is it about the Middle Ages that I would look back to and hope that we can learn from? It's, uh, in a word, it's decentralization, which from our point of view, with massive nation states that have hundreds of millions of people in them, the medieval political situation might as well be anarchy. And that's part of the reason I use the term medieval anarchy or medieval anarchism. Because from our point of view, with this massive political consolidation, you look at a map of the Holy Roman Empire, Kirka, I don't know, 1200 or something like that. It looks like what I like to call a patchwork quilt. There's so many little principalities, bishoprics, city-states, and they all have like real devolved sovereignty. They're not like just an administrative department, which is what we're used to in, in these days, right? It's like, well, yeah, we have the 50 states, and yes, there are some differences between them, but when it comes down to it, it is a unitary United States, right? Well, that was not the case in medieval Europe. These little relatively small principalities, and there were just hundreds, thousands, I don't know, there were a lot. They were real. They were politically real. They had real political sovereignty. And so that is interesting. That's one angle on it, is literally just to look at a map and go, oh, wow, they had a lot more political entities back then. One of the results, of course, as Ralph Rako points out, is that if you didn't like the deal you were getting, it wasn't so hard to kind of go down the road, so to speak, and get a different deal. Mm -hmm. And this caused competition between these smaller political units which gave us, Ralph argues, what we think of as liberty, European, the liberty that we, we, we kind of discovered, so to speak, in Christendom. But that's not the only way to think about it. That's one way. That's a simple way. Is look at the map and see all these political boundaries. But I think medieval anarchy is deeper and richer than that, because not only do you have the political decentralization, but you have other overlapping and competing authorities like the authority of the medieval church, right? And guilds, and on and on and on. 
uh, fraternal societies. I mean, the, all kinds of ways in which an individual, uh, a particular person, would be under authority and connected to and in sort of contract with, so to speak, or that's not the right word, that's a modern term, having fealty, having mutual feel, uh, mutual bond with all kinds of other people and, and groups, so that it was very sort of rich and complicated, right? But as Bertrand de Juvenal points out, what we get with the rise of the nation state in modern times is that these intermediary institutions get destroyed and it's basically like the sole individual, or that's what they would like it to be, right? I mean, I think we still have families more or less, but it's like they would like it to just be an atomized individual and the state and nothing in between. What does that mean? It means we're completely helpless because what can I, a disconnected individual, do against something like the United States federal government, right? It's, it's a hopeless match. Yes, I, actually one point that I would stress about what made Euro Europe and really the broader like collective West quote unquote exceptional is the fact that there was so much jurisdictional and institutional competition among each other that exactly. it, it resulted in a lot of like military and economic innovation. Contrast that to say like the Ottomans or like even like the Chinese, you had these really massive clunky empires that were really over bureaucratized and stagnant and as a result from like the 1500s up until the mid 20th century a, a lot of these places just started to become much more stagnant and even like completely imploded while the west was on the up and up but this wasn't just i like magic there was like a lot of cultural like institutional circumstances that really shaped that and i agree with the medieval and the so-called like dark age assessment that that those periods were much more nuanced in terms of like the way they developed. It's really a case of muddling through, if you will, where people found mm -hmm. what like worked and what didn't work. Right. Yeah. And and so here's something that frustrates me a little bit, Jose, and maybe you can relate. As much as I appreciate the dissident right and and learn a lot, and and these are my friends. You know, I talk to them every day. <laughs> uh, you know, chat with them every day. I'll I'll feel frustration because. They will pick certain parts of our, our shared European heritage and maybe latch on to those and then sort of spit on other parts. So, you know, some people in the right are very focused on sort of European genetics, you know, like being, being white, white, you know, which mm -hmm. in essence, we could translate that as just being of European heritage, right? Yeah. Uh, so they'll really focus on that. And then other people will focus on something else. But as I said in a, wrote in a Substack article recently, I feel like it's, it's that story of the uh, people having different parts of the The blind philosophers each having a different piece of the elephant, right? Yeah. Our European heritage, which I, I like to call Christendom, is white, right, I suppose, right? European, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a specific people, right? The European peoples or a specific set of peoples. But also it's Christian, but also... It has this, I don't know what to call it, rationalist streak, and therefore also this uh, science, right? There's also this great artistic heritage from European history. And there is this decentralized, overlapping jurisdiction, complicated thing that gave us liberty as we understand it now, right? Or liberty at its yeah, best yeah. is maybe what I should say, because some people have a really bad idea about liberty. But to me, that is, that is what the heritage of liberty. So I am unwilling 
to throw any of this overboard. As much as these, in the name of these things, in the name of science, in the name of liberty, evil things have been done in the 20th century and before, right? Correct. I, I'm unwilling to throw any of this overboard. It is all our heritage, and I want to reclaim all of it, right? The Christianity, the science, the rationality, the art, the decentralized uh, polities. This is all something that was beautiful, and we have something to be proud of there. And we should know that it's something to be proud of because our current evil regime just constantly propagandizes against it, right? I mean, Big they, time. They, yeah, they constantly tell us how, you know, Europeans are evil and the Middle Ages was dark and, you know, middle, medieval Christianity was, was uh, primitive and superstitious and, you know, all this stuff, you know, and anyone who actually digs into the Middle Ages and looks at some of the philo philosophy going on, you know, Aquinas and so forth knows that that is just complete BS, right? Yeah. It's like, it's like the, uh, the, the, the guys, um, I, I don't know, I think it's pretty well known that this is a myth, uh, you know, the, the, this is a lie now. But it was like that thing about um, how medieval Europeans thought the earth was flat. You, you know that story, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is such a great example of the kind of lies that our current regime builds itself on. It literally lies to us and tells us stuff that if we went back and talked to them and said, hey, I was told that you guys think the earth is flat. They'd just look at us like that if we were loons. You know, what? Who told you that? You know, we, we don't think that. <laughs> now, based on your research, um, like the so-called dark ages in the medieval, in the broader medieval period, in terms of like economic freedoms, like say like taxation and regulatory burdens, was like the average serf in many ways freer than the average citizen in the collective West these days? I am not as good on this as my friend, academic agent. He is got the gift of, uh, what do you call it? Autism? No, no, no. That's not what it's called. Uh, the, gift of, <laughs> uh, the gift of numeracy. He is, uh, and I'm an engineer, but he is just... He's a great channel, by the way. Highly recommend. Yeah, yeah. Highly recommend. Yeah, he's my good friend, and I often appear on his channel. So he goes back, and we actually have, like, prices on bread in England going back, like, a thousand years or something. It's amazing what information's out there, and he knows how to find it, you know, academic agent. So he's actually gone back there, and he has done some videos on his channel about, you know, what was life like in the 13th century or whatever, you know? in terms of community. What was it like economically? He argues, for example, that he thinks we are working a lot more than they were based on mm, what the evidence he's been able to find. Yeah, I don't know if you ever heard this, but sometimes the Middle Ages, actually, they would make fun of them because they had so many religious holidays. You know, like you look at the church calendar and you find out how many of those were, I guess, feast days, it's called. Sorry, I'm not a Catholic, but basically it's um, days where people were not working. They were like partying, you know, and it's like half the year. And it's like, what? How did they get anything done? You know, well, what AA argues, I don't know if really people were not working half the year, but but AA argues that um, based on what he's been able to find, they were not working 100 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, you know, which is the picture that we've been given. You know, if it wasn't for progressives and the labor unions, we'd be working as hard as they were in the Middle Ages, you know. And he's saying, no, 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 that's that's more regime lies. And in, in fact, life was not so bad as they have painted it in terms of the amount of time worked, the diet. I think sometimes they're able to do like archaeological stuff where they actually 
can tell what the diet was by looking at the bones or something. I don't know. But there's even archaeological evidence of what the diet was for like a peasant back then. And it was, they ate meat, you know, they ate food. <laughs> like we would think of as food, you know. Yeah, the stuff that people want to ban now, like especially these parasites. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so this is not super my area, but but from those who are whose area it is, um, I think Rachel Fulton Brown would probably be good on this sort of stuff as well. But there's also some French historians who got interested in focusing on the history of ordinary people's lives, right? Because we usually think of history as the history of like the big political movers and shakers. There's a school of French history that got interested in just understanding what life was like for a peasant in the 15th century and the 17th century and so forth. And so I think they turned up a lot of stuff along these lines as well. Yeah, I come from a historical uh, historian background, and mm. I really like got got into that when I was in college. I mostly focused on like a lot of East Asian and Latin American history, but revisionist history has always interested me as well. And at the Mises Institute, I've written some stuff about like the Gilded Age, a a, a period that is constantly burnt in effigy by yep. court historians, along with the so-called dark ages. In fact, I, I, I'd say that Tom Woods was the principal figure, especially his book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History, that got me into reviewing history and just rethinking it in general because there's just so much bad information or just really yep. bad interpretations of history out there. And I think it's like very necessary to like set the record straight on on this stuff right so i'll tell you um just so you know where i'm coming from my father was a evangelical non-denominational pastor and so i found myself to be in alliance with and friendly with conservative theologically conservative catholics and orthodox but i am not myself high church and so with that as the background let me just endorse this book by tom woods called how the catholic church built western yes, civilization that's a great, fantastic book it will blow your mind. I mean, it didn't make me into a Catholic, but it did make me really appreciate the Middle Ages. It made me, it helped me to appreciate the monastic orders and everything that they accomplished, not just spiritually, but also in terms of agricultural innovation and scientific research and so on and so forth. There's a reason that when you study, you know, plant biology and stuff like that, you start running into the names of monks a lot, right? Anyway, if you would like to rescue the Middle Ages for yourself from the dire picture that's been given us, that would be a fabulous place to start. How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization by Thomas E. Woods. Yep. Um, I highly recommend like any of his like historical works. He's not as yeah. prolific these days, like the past like decade or so, because he's mostly focused on his podcast, but like his right. literary body of work is generally unmatched uh, these days in terms yeah. of like contemporary political writers. Absolutely. Agreed. Great stuff. I edited one of his books, by the way. <laughs> oh, very cool. That's great yeah. to hear. Now, uh, I want to go back to the one point you raised about the dissident right, because I've been more or less like involved in that space for the past decade, and I've picked up on several trends there. And mm. I'm not as much of like an ideological like stifler in terms of uh, secular these days on those issues, but they are pretty heterodox on economic affairs. So you'll see a lot of people who will take more pro-nationalist economic stances, and there's mm -hmm. some that are more receptive to 
free market solutions. Do you find that people on the dissident right are becoming more receptive to Austrian economics these days? Well, I don't know. I've, I'm in a weird situation, right, because I'm very much an academic agent circle. An academic mm. agent, at one point, people thought of him as basically an economics YouTuber who was talking about Austrian economics all the time. And then I edited his book called Champions of Freedom, where he was really capturing everything he had learned about not just not just Austrian economics, but sort of the, the whole history of classical liberalism. And it, it ended up being a book very focused on economics, to be fair. Anyway, so he knows his econ, which is fun because his background is actually he's a, a Shakespearean scholar. That The reason I say that's fun is we just sadly lost Paul Cantor this year, who was also a Shakespearean scholar who knew his econ. In fact, Paul Cantor had studied from Ludwig von Mises personally as a young man. <laughs> and I got wow. to spend many hours talking to Paul. So I actually know two Shakespearean scholars who were like really good on Austrian economics and found ways to integrate it with everything else they were interested in. So kind of a, an odd thing to know two of them personally. But anyway, so academic agent has learned this econ and now he's focused more on political theory and so forth. But at his best, he integrates and synthesizes these things. And when people on the dissident right start saying stuff that's just makes no sense, you know, Keynesian crap and stuff like that. He, he shoots him down, you know, <laughs> because he, yeah. he knows, he knows his economics, you know? So, so that's very helpful. And that's made it easier for me to fit into this stuff because I, I, I'm not averse to thinking about certain things, right? Like, you know, what, was it such a great idea for the United States to like lose all its manufacturing? Well, Probably if I was going to dig into that, and I haven't, but if I was going to dig into that, I would use the usual Austrian approach of figuring out whether that happened uh, naturally and spontaneously, or did it have a lot to do with state intervention, right? Like, yeah. like, like say, the machinations of the Fed, you know? Because what we often find is people will say, we can't have this free market economics because it has X, Y, Z result, right? That we see all around us. And we're like, okay, number one, we haven't had free market economics, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> yeah, for like, since like the creation of the Fed. Like, exactly. For, we, for a century, we've been under central banking, Keynesianism, so on and so forth. A hundred years passes, and then right-wingers tell me, see what the free market did to us? It's like, uh, wait a second, did you miss the 20th century, dude? <laughs> yeah, the century that should be like repealed legislatively. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The 20th century was not exactly, uh, you know, Murray Rothbard going to the White House, advising them <laughs> and having, yeah. them, having them take his advice about, you know, getting rid of the national debt and uh, going to gold and, you know, right. This was not what happened in, in case you somehow missed that. Right. So, yeah, it is a frustrating point for me, Jose. I, I've chosen not to hammer on it too much. I just kind of do my thing on my channel where I promote Austrian economics and yeah. try to apply it. And I just try to show that we understand the world very well using in part, not solely, right, but in part an Austrian lens. It helps us to understand things, to see things coming. So, for example, I was very proud of a show we did shortly after February 24th when Russia started its action in the Ukraine. A couple of weeks after that, we said, hmm, this is interesting. The ruble was supposed to be reduced to rubble, according to President Biden. <laughs> yeah. But, but it seems to be doing quite well. What's going on here? So we did a show analyzing it. 
And our whole analysis and what we expected to happen next has completely been borne out by events. Well, you know, I would love these guys who are promoting Friedrich List on the, uh, in, in, in the right to, uh, to, to be able to pull off that kind of analysis. Because I, I just think that they're getting into crank economics. And what that means is that they don't end up having good insight on the world. And as you and I know, Austrians are able to do things like predict the 1929 crash, like Hayek and Mises both did, you know, to predict the uh, bubble in, uh, or so the, sorry, the, the bubble and bust, see the bubble and predict the bust of the real estate market 10 years ago, which Mark Thornton has summarized in one of in his recent book, how, you know, documented that the Austrians saw it coming and they explained why it was happening. And, um, you know, we can't, we can't give the day an hour. Austrian economics doesn't make us into like profits, but we can see that it's structural problems and we can see that it's not going to last. Right. So oh, big time. I, just, yeah. I don't know why you would take this tool out of your toolbox because otherwise you just end up getting surprised by events. And if you ever actually get in power, if the dissident right ever actually gets in power, it'd be nice if they didn't do stupid stuff economically because the problem with doing that is it means things don't last very long. Right. You do a bunch of stupid stuff and then it all falls apart because you're doing uh, bad. You do. You have terrible economic policies and then everybody hates you because you're making them poor. <laughs> like, I don't think this is what anybody wants. Yeah, it's weird. I've seen some segments of the dissident right even go as far to like endorse like MMT and stuff like that. And it's like. Like what, one thing that's generally ignored too is that some of like the original Austrians, like Friedrich von Wieser, were mm -hmm. kind of status, but they were like at least heterodox, and they still understood the importance of getting your central banking policy in line because that stuff can like destroy like your economy, and yeah. like at least like those people should like entertain that. I'm somewhat heterodox on some issues. Like, I'm not, like, that averse to tariffs. So, like, if you get rid of, like, the entire, like, regulatory state and the present system of taxation, like, that's how, like, the Gilded Age was. Like, that was, like, the principal form of taxation, like, through tariffs. But, like, I don't know if I would go as far as, like, to endorse, like, MMT or, like, Keynesianism. That stuff is just, like, loony in my, in right. my view. And, and it will discredit them, too. Exactly. Here, here's the problem. In, in certain areas, dissident right is, you know, based in red pill, right? They, they yeah. have seen through the current thing and they realize it's BS and they understand certain realities and they're able to bring those to bear and have great insight on a number of topics, right? And what does this mean? This means that they're not blown about by the wind of whatever the latest thing the regime is pushing. They're able to stay grounded in truth, right? Well, if they don't get grounded in Austrian economics, in my view, they are going to get blown about in this particular area. Like, MMT is just the latest stupid fad from a certain wing of regime-friendly economists, right? Yeah. And so they're going to buy that, as you, as you said, because they're not grounded in truth. So, you, you know, just as much as you want to be grounded in truth when it comes to, I don't know, crime demographics or whatever it is right-wingers are into, right? Just as much as you want to be grounded in truth on those things, you should be grounded in truth on economics, or you're just going to end up looking like a fool. Yeah, that's what, in my opinion, sank a lot of these like third positionist movements and like fascism and clerical fascism and all these permutations of movements yeah. that arose in response to communism in continental Europe was that they didn't get their economics right. And by not getting like the central banking policies on point, 
they undermined themselves and they were easily replaced by a lot of these like managerial liberal and conservative type of establishment parties. And that's like why it's important exactly. to at least like, I, I tell people this, that they, they should at least be able to embrace free markets as, insofar as central banking and the regulatory state is concerned. The, the latter is, I think, should interest the dissident right the most because it's part of like the broader civil rights revolution state as well. Yeah. Like a lot of this right. stuff. And that's the one thing I do credit the DR for being really good at is that they explain and libertarians, paleo libertarians as well. Uh, I've explained how like this this entire civil rights regime, this entire uh, regulatory regime from the anti-discrimination laws to affirmative action is just like designed to create lots of social and economic distortions and really exert more control over the way we associate with people on a, on a personal basis. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to drop the name Paul Gottfried at this point, right? Yes. Because I, he's really strong in this area of the administrative state, the managerial state, whatever you want to call it. And there's a talk by him that I want to recommend. It's right there on YouTube from the Mises Institute. Mises Media is the channel. It's called Why Political Correctness is Political. And there he talks about how, you know, these, these things the right hates so much that get pushed you know, the latest, you know, trans kids thing or whatever it is, you know, it's going to be something different tomorrow, right? But they're always got something they're pushing culturally, and the right wing tends to oppose it. Well, Paul Gottfried in this talk, Why Political political Correctness is Political, argues that this isn't just happening because of like the zeitgeist or something like that. It's literally being funded by the government, if you dig. Yes. Yeah, they're literally paying for this sort of cultural subversion. And he really connects the dots. And he starts out the talk, by the way, paying beautiful tribute to Rothbard. And this is the thing that dissident rightists would not. They would think that Paul Gottfried, who does get some respect from the dissident right, they would think that Paul Gottfried was like the big right winger and Rothbard was the Lalbert, right? Well, yeah. If you listen carefully to the beginning of that talk, you'll note that it was Rothbard who was pulling Gottfried into being based in Red Pill. <laughs> Yeah. Rothbard says, yeah, in the early 80s, I was still kind of in my GOP phase. And Rothbard was the one who really broke me out of that, you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, Rothbard in the 80s and 90s uh, took a very interesting turn. I, I believe, in my opinion, that was when he was at his best because he knew how he synthesized a lot of the cultural economics and like the politics together to cobble together that coalition with Gottfried, uh, Buchanan and Sam Francis. And I, I think there was like something going there. It's like really unfortunate that he passed away at that time. And then not yeah, too 95. shortly after, yep. And not too shortly after, like a decade later, Sam Francis passed away. Those were two figures yeah. in this dissident space that I believe passed away way too soon. They would have had a lot yeah. of fantastic insights to offer, especially during the Trump era. Yeah, not to be too inside baseball, but I'll just briefly say, and I'm hoping to do a stream with Thomas 77 oh, on this. Go ahead. Uh, that um, Rothbard, I think, was right wing all along. For example, and uh, you know, Godfrey saying this at the beginning of his speech is part of the thing that like put all the pieces together for me. And I'm just remembering all these things I've read from Rothbard throughout his whole life, basically. For example, he wrote a speech uh, praising Joe McCarthy. Now, it was delivered by George Reisman, but George Reisman said that Rothbard wrote it. And there's a copy of that speech you can find. Uh, um, there's an um, audio of George Reisman giving this short speech, kind of in tribute to McCarthy. And the themes you hear sound like they come out of Sam Francis. But this is not in the 
latter paleoconservative Rothbard phase. This is in, what, what was it, the 50s or the early 60s? You know, this is like way early in his career. So, you know, when Rothbard writes about the betrayal of the American right, which is something I recommend to all American yes. right people, must reading in my view, when he writes about the betrayal of the American right, it's quite clear that these are Rothbard's people. Like he tried alliances with the new left briefly and he tried this and he tried that because he's just, you know, libertarians were just alone, real libertarians like Rothbard. They were just alone and very had very little bit of institutional backing and everything. So he was always looking for someone he could work with. But in terms of where he himself was coming from, he was a proud member of the old right. And to a great degree, he just wanted to bring that back. So what you're talking about with Sam Francis and, and the, um, I'm sorry, what was the name of the society? My mind's gone blank. Sa the, oh, yeah, I, for, I forget that same, uh, that yeah, society. You know I mean. that they, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, um, Randolph Bourne? No, 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 it was named after someone. Oh, the, the, anyway. Yeah, it's like the John Randolph Society or whatever. Uh, John Randolph Society, that's it, that's it. Um, yeah, yeah, the John Randolph Society. That is just something that he'd wanted coming, happening again, that he'd been part of when he was young. And then the horrible post-World War II era kind of crushed it, right? Uh, along with William Buckley and the neocons and all these horrible people. They kind of crushed all that so stuff, and he literally got kicked out. Like, he actually wrote for National Review very, very early on. He got booted. You know, he got canceled. And then near the end of his life, he got to see a little bit of a return, uh, briefly, with Buchanan and Sam Francis and him and Hoppe and so forth. Uh, an alliance between people whose concerns were sort of culturally right-wing and people whose concerns were anti-state, anti-war, and, you know, pro the free society. As I've been trying to describe with medieval anarchism and all this, I don't think there's any, ultimately should be any tension. It's all part of our European heritage. All of this stuff, right? Yes. Sort of the culturally conservative themes, even the, the free market stuff goes back to what we, through practice, through hit and miss, as you described, we kind of came up with it in medieval Europe, right? Not not because anyone planned to. It just happened because of decentralization. Yeah. yeah, it's actually weird how you'll see some people really like dismiss decentralization because if you go all the way back to uh, even like the Greeks, you had like city states and there's always like in a yeah. cyclical manner of decentralization always coming back, whether it's like the medieval period or like the Italian city states the like Hanseatic League and even like Switzer modern day Switzerland, like that stuff is like part and parcel of European culture. And it's not some like outlier whatsoever. Right. Now for like the Austrian school of economics, since, since you've been around that scene for a while, do you get the impression that it has grown in prominence since you first started delving into that topic? That's a good question. I mean, I guess I would say that when I was first around, young Austrians getting like a, a decent academic job was pretty exciting. And now it's pretty normal. <laughs> um, mm. So from that point of view, just strictly in ac academia, um, I, I gather that there's Austrians all over the place, which is great, right? Because I have young people yes. come to me and say, where can I go? And I'm like, where can I go to learn some Austrian economics? And I'm like, actually, there's quite a few options. You know, you've got Walter Block in New Orleans, and you've got George Mason University, and and many, many others. You know, Hillsdale College has good Austrian stuff there. 
And in some cases, I know these people, you know, I actually can give you names, you know, they're like old friends of mine, you know, that are professors at these various places. So it was very small. The signal event was kind of two things. There was a F.A. Hayek, the Austrian economist F.A. Hayek, got the Nobel Prize, along with another guy who wasn't very good. But anyway, <laughs> he got the Nobel, Nobel Prize for economics or no a prize in honor of Nobel or something, which often is given to crappy stuff. But whatever, we, we played off it and, and were able to kind of start building again as, as a school of economics. And then uh, was it the very same year? There was a conference that Murray Rothbard was at, Joe Salerno, a number of others. And that really began. And that, so that was 74, I think. That really began the modern Austrian revival. So when I go to the Mises Institute in 96, that's just uh, 22 years after that. The Mises Institute has been around since the 80s at that point, And it's all very new. And you basically know everybody personally, you know, because <laughs> um, there's just not that many people. And since then, I think it's, it's become much more international. There's Mises Institutes all over the world. I had the pleasure this spring of meeting a number of folks from Mises Institute Brazil, including uh, staff of Mises Institute Brazil, who were up yeah, they're the, great. That, the that crowd is really based. Oh yeah, yeah, they are top-notch people, and I, I just like them personally. <laughs> and you've got Mises Institutes in Europe, etc. So you know, it is at this point, it isn't a dying school that once had its heyday back in the interwar years. It is back, baby. <laughs> it has um, got journals. It's got conferences. It's got Mises Institutes all over the place in, in different countries. It's it's really a, a great thing from that point of view. So yeah, I, I feel like it's uh, things are going well actually. I, I got to got to say the name Jose Lou Rockwell, right? Because it was yes, partially yes. It, it was got to give a lot of credit to his uh, entrepreneurial vision to create the Mises Institute, which the Cokes tried to stop him. You know, the, the Koch brothers, you know, the billionaires, mm. they were very yeah. unhappy with him doing this. And they, they tried to intimidate him and tell everybody, don't work with them and you know, all this stuff. Uh, they basically tried to cancel him before it even started. You know, <laughs> they were trying to cancel it. And, and he, uh, with the help of a lot of small donations from regular folks, has built this institute and it is really doing well. And it's for me, it's a sort of ideological home. I go there and I always learn and always get to meet a lot of like-minded folks. Yeah, I strongly recommend people make a pilgrimage to the Mises Institute. It's one of the last few like bastions of sanity and this clown world polity that we live in. And Lou Rockwell is a giant in this entire space. And LouRockwell.com, I'd, I'd say, was one of the websites that truly made me like hardcore with regards yeah. to like following this, these type of politics. Now, yeah, and what? I should mention, Jose, that um, my wife and I wrote for Lou Rockwell uh, a bit back before we, oh, nice. Gazillion, before we had a bunch of kids. So you'll still find um, articles by me and her at lourockwell.com, and that's L E W rockwell.com. So M I S E S dot org and lourockwell.com are two sites, and antiwar.com, by the way. Those are the three sites I consider sort of the trinity of libertarian sites. We'll make sure to put um, your articles in the show notes as well so my followers can take a look at them. Now, what Austrian figure got you, would you say, got you into studying like Austrian economics? Yeah, well, that's interesting because I think all of us who tend to be more, uh, I don't know, radical, I don't know what it is, end up being sort of Misesian, Rothbardian, Hoppians, 
right? <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're sort of the core. They're the, they're the sort of most consistent, most radical out of the Austrian school. Having said that, I actually read a lot of Hayek at first. And I, I, I think Hayek, unfortunately, gets a little bit a short shrift these days because he was not, nominally, he was not as radical. He had a book that Rothbard just tore apart <laughs> called The Constitution of Liberty, where he basically was making peace with the welfare state. And he, he was not getting it about the administrative managerial regime being built and what a nightmare it was. Uh, maybe eventually he would have, or maybe he did at the end of his life and his later work. I'd have to think about that. But having said that, Hayek was just a genius. He was able to function in many languages. He was a great historian of intellectual thought. His writings on John Stuart Mill is something that you shouldn't miss if you want to try to understand what in the heck happened to classical liberalism as we finish up the 19th and go into the 20th century. He wrote wonderfully on the uh, Saint-Simonians, you know, some of these early socialist types, and uh, Auguste Comte. And he also has this big interest in culture. He's interested in how it is that some cultures do better than others because of the practices they adopt. You know, so cultural evolution is one way to sort of think about that. So anyway, I, I read a lot of Hayek, and that got me into going to the Mises Institute, and then I ended up reading Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe and everything. But I actually started with Hayek, and uh, I don't regret it. He, he taught me a lot. I mean, I wouldn't call myself a Hayekian because people would think that I'm like soft or something and not radical. But intellectually speaking, Hayek will teach you a lot if you will be a little bit open-minded. Yeah, one thing about Hayek that, if I recall correctly, towards the end of his life, he did kind of have some identitarian takes on immigration and whatnot, because I, I think there was like one really? interview where, like from Switzerland, he, he did say that there are certain cultures that are not very compatible with like the ideas of like liberty and like, like having these type of cultures like in mass, like coming into a country could really alter the political situation there for the worse, if I'm not mistaken. And he, he is an interesting figure, regardless of whether you fully agree with his analysis of like economics and all that, but he um he is like a true like elite in every sense of the word. Same with Mises. These these were very talented individuals that yeah. dominated tons of subjects. I, I just found this uh, in a letter to the London Times on 1978. I didn't know about this. This is why I'm reading this out. I'm learning as we go. Professor Hayek, himself an immigrant several times in his life, praised the British conservative leader Margaret Thatcher for her call for stringent immigration controls. Quote. While I look forward as an ultimate ideal to a state of affairs in which national boundaries have ceased to be obstacles to the free movement of men, I believe that within any period with which we can now be concerned, any attempt to realize it would lead to a revival of strong nationalist sentiments. That's interesting. So he's basically saying there's going to be a backlash if you keep doing this mass immigration stuff. Yep, and we're, yeah, when we're, yeah, when we're seeing that play out in real time. Absolutely. Yep. yep. So yeah, in, in this time, like during the 90s, would you say that the primary figure that got people into Austrian economics ideas was like Hayek or Rothbard? Well, Hayek, because he was softer, ended up being a sort of a gateway, right? Mm. It was like safe to talk about Hayek. So the Cato Institute would downplay Mises and Rothbard to some degree and play up Hayek, at least at one point, like in that, at that time, like in the 90s. But the thing about Hayek is... He gets you an Austrian econ. And if you get an Austrian econ, you got to read Mises and Rothbard. Once you read Mises and Rothbard and you kind of 
make the adjustment to their style, which is very different than Hayek's. Hayek is, and he described this himself, Hayek is more of a kind of a fuzzy thinker in a way, but I don't mean that to put him down. It's just a different style of being an intellectual. And he described himself this way. Whereas Mises, Rothbard, and Hoppe are careful, step-by-step, logically deductive thinkers. They show you their steps as they go, right? Where Hayek's just like, this is kind of interesting. Doesn't that make you think of this too? You know? (laughs) But he was brilliant and he would make interesting connections that way. So adjusting, I found, after reading a bunch of Hayek, when I first read Mises, it just felt weird. Mises was so sort of uh, dogmatic in, in the way he wrote, I guess. But once you kind of get over that, you realize just how brilliant Mises is, right? And, and his brilliance just keeps opening up like a flower as time goes on. We just realize how insightful he was on so many issues. Not just pure economics, by the way. I mean, he wrote, mm. on, you know, from the perspective of being in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and on the issue of nationalism, from the point of view of living in an empire that was trying to get a bunch of different nations, you know, different peoples with different languages and different cultures and different religions, trying to get them all to like play along together, you know. And so he he wrote with great insight on nationalism in a book called Nation, State and Economy. Again, a book that nationalists, you know, dissident right people should really be talking about. They, they would find uh, at least it would start some very interesting discussions, even if they don't totally agree with where he's coming from, you know. Yeah, when you put this together and look at it, from a bird's eye view, Mises lived like during a time when the West just went off the rails from like World War One to World War Two, just like all like the really bad interventions, both in terms of foreign policy and, and domestic. And he does offer like a kind of like re- um, view back then, like in real time of like what he was seeing unfold and how it's go- was going to end up in like disaster within like 50 years or so and now it's starting to bear this really nasty fruit that a lot of people haven't realized it's been like decades in the making right yeah yeah and all all these great people they they saw it coming absolutely now things in u.s politics are getting pretty interesting you have a lot of like mass polarization and like obviously like the inflation crisis which is not transitory by the way and and right. a lot of other stuff popping off. Um, how do you see American politics going forward? Are you optimistic about the prospects for radical decentralization taking place? Well, it's interesting. I was just sharing this poll, which was polls. Any economist will tell you you don't you don't trust <laughs> yeah. polls, right? Because the reason yeah. is because it's not a revealed preference, right? It's just, you know, hey, do you want world peace? Hey, look at that. A poll told us 100% of people want world peace. Yeah, well, that doesn't really tell us much, right? <laughs> uh, so you have to be really careful with polls. But I was just sharing this poll from an anti-gun group that asked people, do you think a civil war is coming? And uh, for what it's worth, bearing in mind that it's a poll done by an anti-gun group, and you know, anti-Second Amendment type group, over half said that they saw a civil war in the United States imminent in the next several years. That is kind of mind-blowing, don't you think? Yeah. Yes. I don't think people would have said that 20 years ago. Oh, definitely not. Or in the 90s. I mean, it would have been like 1%, not over 50%. So I, I'm seeing that a lot of people are sensing that something is really wrong. Where that leads, of course, I have no idea. Now, academic agent, my friend academic agent, he thinks that they are going to try a containment mechanism. So containment is 
where they pay lip service to your concerns to kind of bring you back on board, bring you back into the game, right? Hey, yeah, no, we hear you. We, we hear your concerns about, you know, whatever, immigration, populist concerns, things like that. So he thinks like Ron DeSantis, for example, will be used as a containment mechanism because he's dug into some of these laws that Ron DeSantis is getting passed in Florida. Mm, interesting. He says, yeah, he says you get past the title and you get into the details and it's terrible. It's terrible stuff. Now, I haven't done the research myself, but I trust Yeah, him. not to veer off, but I had another yeah. guest by the name of Keith Preston. He argued something very similar to that. Yeah, yeah, Keith, yeah. Right, so, so DeSantis, for example, could be used as containment. Hey, DeSantis, he's that base governor from Florida. He becomes president. We're all like, oh, good. Okay, yeah, it's Trump 2.0. Things are good, you know. We're, we're being represented. You know, we don't have to revolt against the system. The system hears us. Democracy's working, right? Yeah, it kind of swung. It got pretty crazy there for a while, but it's going to be okay, right? So that's sort of, sort of what he predicts. Or I'm sorry, he doesn't predict it. He says that if he were the regime, that's what he would do, right? Mm. Because if, if they don't start throwing a bone to the populace, the conservatives, the right wing, whatever you want to call them, we could be heading for national divorce. So if, if yeah. they're stupid and intransigent, stupid from their point of view, I mean, I want them to be intransigent because I want a national divorce, but <laughs> I want secession and decentralization, or at least de facto. If they're stupid from their point of view, if they're non-strategic, they will be really hardcore. They will not budge an inch. And they will say, we are going to transition all your little three and four-year-olds. And I don't, we don't care what you say. We don't care how much you yell and scream and vote and all that stuff. We're going to fake the elections and we're going, to, we're going to just shove this down your throat. They're going to get a revolt on their hands, I think. I mean, I don't know what form that would take, but they're going to get some really substantive resistance. Don't you think? Yeah, I think that we may see, and I'm basing this off of what Keith Preston has told me because he's really studied a lot of civil war scenarios and societal breakdown topics lately. And we've talked about this in my first interview with him on El Nino Speaks here. Now, I tend to think that you may start seeing um, forms of micro insurgencies start taking place in across the US and it's gonna be like transpartisan. You're gonna see a lot of leftists because a lot of le leftists initiate these because they're pretty violent and we saw that sneak preview of it during the BLM Summer of Love in 2020. And like, I, I think that there's like a, there is a growing swath of like of the cultural left now that is willing to act like extra politically and go as far as to like kill their opposition, if you will. And you'll definitely see that. You'll probably see like a lot of like gang style type of extra political violence pop off if things like really start getting bad. But yeah, I do agree that the regime finds itself in a really weird position where I believe it's exhausted all forms of soft power that it could use to manipulate the population. And now like they're going to have to like pretty much use hard power and they may end up using it in a really clunky fashion that will provoke exactly. a nasty revolt um, on their hands. And yeah, I don't know. You are kind of seeing too what I would call like the idiocratization of like the American state and a lot of private sector entities as well with the full embrace of like affirmative action, like diversity quotas and all that, which to me, it leads me to believe that it's going to create some type of form of failed state, very likely at the federal level. And 
and a lot of in among a lot of like private um institutions as well you'll see lots of like breakdowns and like the small things like infrastructure a lot of like customer service and all of that and to me this is actually as bad as that sounds um it does have silver linings because it does open up a lot of vacuums for people that are practicing radical decentralization as we speak to come in and offer like an alternative model for this. So I don't think things are like that, like black pilling in the long term. Absolutely. Yeah, I, my, my memory. So I was born in 1969 and my memory growing up because I was always uh, because of my uh, parents, I was never going along with the regime. I always saw the regime as an enemy. I added more reasons to see it as an enemy as I got older, but I, it was never my friend, you know. But I always had a sense of, is respect the right word? You know, the way you respect a lion that can eat you, that kind of feeling, right? I always felt like these are people who are pretty savvy and they have ways of getting their way that is pretty subtle and kind of sneaking things past people, you know, and uh, very clever use of rhetoric, and propaganda and like you don't even realize what they're trying to do to you until basically it's fait accompli it's already done you know right and these days they don't seem so smart anymore and i'm like yes what happened because they seem very blunt it's like they show their hand you know what they're up to everybody else knows what they're up to and a bunch of people want to resist it you know they, they don't like sneak anything past us anymore it's like, did we get smarter? They get dumber. I don't know, but I, I feel like the dynamic has really changed. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, actually, <clears throat> Steve Saylor has actually mentioned this mm. before in one of his posts that I saw like on V Day, or I believe it was like about like four or five months ago, where he says that a lot of like the propaganda you see these days is so banana republic tier because his his <laughs> argument is that because of all these like diversity hires and all of that. <clears throat> you're just getting like really incompetent people occupying all these governmental positions and even in corporations as well that they can't like these elites like cannot like craft like even like a, like a uh, a compelling like pro tyranny message so yeah you you're kind of like it's it's an own goal like the diversity state is something that I, I do believe will lead to like some type of like third world style kind of like failed state in some shape or form. And I and like you you can see this too with like that so-called like diversity bridge that collapsed like in Miami and all that. Like that stuff is like I think a microcosm of what's like to come. And you're not gonna really see like a organized, a very like well organized like 20th century garrison state style tyranny like in the Soviet Union. It's just, just gonna be like a really dysfunctional anarcho-tyrannical state that which you already kind of see already in Latin America a lot of respect. So basically we're going to be a high functioning Latino nation if things continue this way. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you said banana republic here and I'm like, is that racist to say that? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. That's where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like think about this recent incident, which I just bring it up because otherwise we're going to forget it because it just happened. It already mm -hmm. feels like it's fading away. The disinformation governance board with this lady, Nina Jankowitz. Oh, that was so right? comical. Yeah. Yeah. What, what a, what a crap show, right? Um, announced on April 27th, 2022. On May 18th, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, the board and its working groups were paused pending review and Nina Jankowitz resigned, the head of the board, as a result of public backlash. 
I didn't know this, mostly from the political right, although criticism also came from progressives and civil, civil libertarians. Good for the civil libertarians. Oh, yeah, Maybe good for those people. I don't know. Yeah. But um, I mean, here's a case where they call it the Disinformation Governance Board. This lady comes out with just the worst PR I have ever seen, right? The Nina Jankowitz lady. Crazy um, drama student energy there. Uh, exactly, right. And it's like, man, this is not our grandpa's uh, regime. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are this is a clown show. Like, who who did they think they did they really think they were going to pull this off? I mean, they evidently they did. They they really started it. They really thought this was going to happen. And anyway, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we got to bring up Spandrell's thing, right? Uh, Bioweninism. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is yeah, same idea you were talking about, which is that the regime wants to get people in it that will be loyal to the regime because otherwise they wouldn't be in that position. Like the only reason they're in that position is because the regime has sort of elevated them that, to that position, not because they actually are competent people. The problem with that, of course, is you have a lot of people who are really loyal to you who are not competent. Yeah, <laughs> so, they can't keep the lights on. Yeah, so on the one hand, they're really loyal. On the other hand, they can't get anything done. So that's, that's bioleninism in a nutshell. Yeah, that's like one problem that the regime is facing right now because some people have gotten creative with this, like especially amongst like neoliberal elites by trying to expand a lot of legal migration to get like more cognitively proficient migrants like from like Asiatics and whatever to integrate them into the overclass. But that creates another set of problems because you're creating a foreign overclass, which is going to breed a lot of like resentment among a lot of the population. And that's why the regime, this present regime does face a lot of problems now where it's reaching a breaking point and you can't just patch together like a solution in the short term because it's just gonna create like a whole another set of problems that could potentially like destroy it from within. I wouldn't be surprised like in this century if we do see kind of like a Soviet style like disillusion of this experiment because there's just so many forces like from within that are just contradictory in nature and just inhibit like the like the like the functioning of like a competent like polity yeah i mean we talk about and by soviet style you mean the end of the soviet union yeah that part yeah. not not the early part yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i agree i agree yeah i mean we talk about dysfunctional right but just think about what dysfunctional literally means it just means a system that cannot function right that just doesn't get you know, the, the trains don't run on time, so to speak, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's weird, you know, when you don't have a sense of history, I think one of the problems with that is that you are so trapped in the current thing, you know, the current perspective, the current regime, that your imagination is really crippled, right? And so people think that, you know, the nation state, because it's been around in its current form for a couple hundred, several hundred years, is going to be around forever, or the United States, that because, you know, it, it became such a big, important power on the earth, that it's going to continue to be a big, important power for as long as the eye can see. Well, look at some history, right? That, that is not exactly how it generally works. Empires rise and fall, sometimes pretty quickly, actually. The Soviet Union is a great example. It, it's sort of shocking because I grew up during the Cold War. I actually visited Europe, by the way while the Soviet Union was still around. I didn't go across the Iron Curtain. I was in the West, you know. But um, at that time, it seemed like the Soviet Union would be around for a really, really long time, right? You know, if you knew your Austrian economics, you might kind of have a sense that, yeah, this, they're not an economic powerhouse. This can't last, you know. But you wouldn't predict that it'd be gone that quickly. 
Well, think about it. Uh, October Revolution is 1917, I think. Mm -hmm. And then we usually mark the end of the Soviet Union as 1991. So what is that? 74 years? Less than 75 years? That's it? I mean, yeah. that's not much of a... Not, that's not in the grand... There are people who were born before the Soviet Union started who lived to see the collapse yeah. of the Soviet Union. It's a molecular speck that. in history. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So if it's sounding... If Jose and I are sounding a little crazy talking about how there could be some radical change coming, maybe some decentralization or civil war or something, some big change where things don't look the way they do right now in the United States. Get, get some historical perspective, you know? United mm -hmm. States, I think, I would not want to put my money on it being gone anytime soon, right? I, I think it'll probably be around in some form or fashion, um, at least officially for some time to come. But you never know. And, and I think we could... In my view, part of the point of decentralists, for example, getting our voice out there is to open up people's imagination to things being able to be a little bit different. 100% agreed. Yeah. And yep. also, I just I said de facto before, but I just wanted to expand on that real quick. Jeff Deist, president of the Mises Institute, has been really strong on this issue of decentralization of national divorce and so forth. And he says, look, I don't necessarily mean that there will be like five new countries. Could be. You know, like the United States falls apart. Now there's like these five new countries where the United States used to be and different states and are in different alliances and so forth. Could be something like that. It could be, though, maybe more likely, the United States is still there on paper, you know, de jure, right? Officially, oh, yeah, we're all still part of the union, you know. But de facto, the states are really just each going their own way. And and the, the, the blue states have basically one set of laws and the red states have a different set of laws, for example. In some ways, we already have that. Yep, we yep. something like something like guns, and now we're seeing it with abortion. Well, what if that keeps happening on issue after issue, until finally, living in Missouri where I live and living in San Francisco, California, are effectively like living in two different countries, <laughs> even though officially, oh yeah, we're all still part of the United States. But yeah, but but on the ground, reality is completely opposite almost, right? Yep, that's where I think a lot of politics is going to be heading. We're going to see a lot of soft secessionism, nullification, exactly. and a lot exactly. of other forms of decentralized political practice take root. This brings us back to medieval anarchism, right, Jose? Yep. Because that is what they had. On-the-ground reality was supposedly they're all part of the Holy Roman Empire or something. But in practice, all these different small polities had different rules and different loyalties and different cultures to some degree. I don't think it's terrible. I don't think it is a nightmare for us to trend back towards something like that. I think, in fact, that would be good. I think it's something to be wished for. Yes, absolutely. It is actually a very moderate and reasonable proposition to solving a lot of the problems we face right now. <laughs> and I'm not usually called moderate, but I appreciate that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, man, let's uh, bookmark this. But before we leave, Stephen, where can my audience keep up with your work? The easiest thing to do, actually, is to go to RadicalLiberation.com. I, I have to remember because my friends just set this up for me. And if you go there, you'll see that you can find all my stuff, starting with uh, YouTube on the left, my YouTube channel, which is sort of my main output. But if you go to the one called Read, that's my Substack. And I think uh, for this conversation in particular, that might be one to click on and try reading Destroying Europe, the final stage, where you'll see some of what I'm thinking about, about the dissident right, 
about sort of my view of medieval Europe and sort of what we're what we're fighting for, I, I think you'd find that quite interesting. Fantastic stuff. And again, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to to join me. Now, to my audience, thank you as well. And with that, El Nino has spoken.